All right, so one of the major claims that I have presented to you about Proverbs is that it acknowledges both the beauty and the brokenness of life. You've heard me say that multiple times over the spring and summer, right? The book of Proverbs isn't overly optimistic, and it's not overly pessimistic. It views life and relationships correctly because the Proverbs captures God's points of view about life, and his view is the best view. Another claim that I've presented to you is that Proverbs acknowledges that life is far more complex than what modern, sophisticated people, especially in America, suppose. The tragic irony about modern people is that we think we know better than the older generations, right? Modern people, by and large, want life to be quick and easy. That's why the drive-through was created in modern society, right? We are the kind of people that think if we just read that New York Times bestseller and we do X, Y, and Z on a certain topic, that it's going to yield the result that we want it to yield, right? Because we are taught that one plus one equals two. But the book of Proverbs acknowledges <laughs> sometimes one plus one feels like it's like negative infinity, right? You can do all the steps that culture tells you to do with marriage, with your family, parenting, work, even what American church culture says about building churches. And the result is not going to be what your heart is really looking for. It's not. And that is even more true for today's topic, which is about what our hearts are really for and the condition of our hearts. American culture tells you to trust in your heart above all things, right? There's a little bit of that pixie dust over your hearts. Right? It's, that, it's that magical. The gospel says that your heart is essential. It is essential. But it cannot be your ultimate authority. The Bible's wisdom is that the heart is far more complex than you can ever imagine, than what a cardiologist can still imagine, literally, physically, and any whiz that's writing today about the human heart could ever imagine. As your heart goes, you go. And only God knows the heart. And even though he knows it, only he can redeem it. And he wants to redeem it, even though he knows all of our hearts and what's in it right now. Crazy, right? All right, so here's our proposition today. This feels weird. It's okay. The wise grow in love for God and for people by relying on him to navigate the heart's complexities. I'll say it one more time. The wise grow in love for God and people by relying on him to navigate the heart's complexities. So we need to define the heart biblically for a moment. Modern people view the heart as the seat of emotions. That's typically how we define the heart, right? The heart holds your emotions. The ancients would be like, Psh. how simple, how narrow-minded of you to think that that's all your heart is. Though it is true that the heart 
is the seat of your emotions, it is not entirely true. It includes emotions, but it's far more. The heart is much more complex than merely the holder and the seat of your emotions and how you are feeling. The heart for the ancients and for the ancient Hebrews, which Solomon is included, is the seat of all that you really are. Everything, the totality of who you are. Your mind, the very fabric of your being, and your emotions. Redemptive history is this, is that God created you in his image. God created, therefore, your heart, your literal heart and the metaphorical heart that we're speaking to today. But in Adam, you and I rebelled against God's designs. And this rebellion broke us. It broke us physically. It broke us emotionally. The very fabric of our being is broken. But God's work in us to redeem our rebel hearts by restoring God's original attentions for our hearts doesn't stop there in the garden and kicking Adam and Eve out, right? He sends the most precious thing to his heart, which is his son. His son takes on flesh. And through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and the work of his spirit and, which many times we forget, the work of his church, the body of Christ, our hearts are renewed and are being continually renewed. You have to remember what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. And I'm glad that many of you have your Bibles. We've looked at this through the Proverbs study. You have to remember, get your eyes on what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says something like that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart is desperately sick. It's the most deceitful part of you. What does that mean for us? You and I, so it's not just your spouse, it's not just your child, but it's you as well. You have a rebellious heart. Your rebellious heart is the most deceitful part about you. You are deceitful, I am deceitful. Not just the person who hurts us, but us too. No one, God says in Jeremiah 17, can understand the heart's completely except for God. So today's wisdom is this. The heart is far more complex than you can ever imagine, but not to God. It's far more complex than what you think. It's far more complex than how you feel. It is essential, but it's not the ultimate gauge and it's not the ultimate authority of your life. The wisdom of Solomon, I believe, would be to push back against American culture and don't go with your guts and not to trust your heart necessarily. Because we need to acknowledge and rely on God to navigate the complexity of our hearts. We need God as authority, and we need God as guide for our hearts. And that is how we're going to grow, in our love for God and our love for people. And this is the work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection to redeem these rebel hearts that you and I have. And that's what today's compilation of Proverbs is going to be about, all right? So, first point is that you are to position your heart. Okay. Just like, shh, right now in my ear. Well, it still smell fresh and clean. <laughs> All the variables of public speaking. I mean, anymore when it's, when it's preaching God's word. Okay. 
All right. Position your hearts to grow by trusting God's understanding of your heart. I'll say it one more time. Position your heart to grow by trusting God's understanding of your heart. All right, so we've learned that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, that's the major claim, whether it's, uh, whether it's Solomon or some of the other Proverbs writers. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That looks like trusting in God with all of our hearts. But this is the tension. Our hearts are rebel hearts, right? How can we trust in God as authority when we, by nature, want to reject that authority? It looks like, as we've gone through Proverbs 3, you know, trusting the Lord with all your heart and not leaning on your own understanding, right? Trusting in Him in all your ways. So we need to get on the same page. We need to get on God's page about your heart. The goal for us right now in this is to gain God's understanding of our hearts. Because if we can gain God's understanding of our hearts instead of what we want it to be or what our culture wants it to be, we can grow in love for God and love for people. So I'll just dangle the carrot this way. If you want to be a better spouse, if you want to be a better parent, it's not by the New York Times bestsellers, read this, read that. It's by gaining God's understanding and coming under it about what he says about how your heart has been created. Okay? Let's get started with our first proverb. This is Proverbs 27, 19. Solomon says in Proverbs 27, 19, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. So we see Solomon used a water illustration. Water can reflect some sort of image of your face or whatever is in it back to you, right? Water's reflection presents an image of what you look like. The illustration points to this truth. The heart is meant to show you where you really are and who you really are right now. Because your heart is your true self. It is the seat of all that you are. Not just your emotions, but also your emotions. So you remember Jeremiah 17.9. Our heart, our true self, is desperately sick. And Jeremiah 17 said that only God can fully know and totally know your heart. So the question is, that Proverbs 3 brings up is, whose understanding are you going to lean on? about your heart. Are you going to lean on God's understanding? Or are you going to lean on your understanding? Or lean on culture's understanding about your heart? But you have to remember, you are not created in your own image. And you are not created in the image of the Americana. You are created in the image of God. You have a heart because God has a heart. He created it to reflect his heart. So the growth that you and I are called to as Christians is growing into the heart of Jesus. Our next proverb is 15.11. Proverbs 15.11. And in it, Solomon says this about God. He says that Sheol and Abaddon are before the Lord. 
Now that's intense, pretty creepy, and cool. But then he adds on to this. How much more the hearts of men. Right now I'm trying to present to you how God knows your heart better than you do. All right? Sheol and Abaddon are ancient terms for the places of the dead. Solomon says that Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. This means that God knows death completely, exhaustively. You and I do not know much about life after death. Though there are numerous New York Times bestsellers that claim that a person has died, gone to heaven and hell, sometimes both, sometimes some intermediate place, and they've come back, and they've written a book, and they're New York Times bestsellers. But the claim of Proverbs is that God knows life and death completely. And you and I innately do not know much about life and death. God knows everything. So Solomon says, here's his logic. If God knows Sheol and Abaddon, what happens after life, how much more does God know your heart? You get the logic? Your heart is even more open to God than the places of the dead. Because he created it in his image. So the question we have to ask is, how do you gain right now? How do you gain God's understanding of the heart? We're going to see that God does put you in a position to show you where your heart is. So let's begin to take a look at this. This is Proverbs 17.3. So just put the page maybe over, maybe one page. 17 chapter, verse 3. And Solomon says that the refining pot is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. Smiths use pots to refine silver and furnaces to refine gold. Smiths use intense heat to melt metal. This causes, from my understanding, if there are impurities in the quality of that metal to bubble up and rise to the surface, the smith can then wipe it off, and it is a much more higher quality or refined metal. Solomon says, God is your smith. God is your workman. Paul says it that way in Ephesians 2. But God doesn't refine metals. God refines hearts. God refines your heart and your heart and your heart. God doesn't use literal fire to do this. He uses our sufferings. He uses our anxieties. He uses our cares and concerns. A whole host of other things so it can bubble up to the surface so he can wipe it away. They function the same way that fire functions for the smith. Affliction works to show if there's anything hurtful in us right now. God is the tester of our hearts. But make no mistake, Heritage, this does not mean that God needs to bring some sort of fire into your life so he can discover what's going on inside of it. God is omniscient. He already knows because he created it. One of the points of the testing isn't for his knowledge. It's for your knowledge. It's for you to know right now in the season of fire, in the season of suffering, these are the things that are going on in my heart, which then pulls you to prayer even more. Change this, Lord Jesus. You died for me. Change this in me, which we'll get to in application. 
our hearts reflect our true selves, not just our emotions. So the question is, will you trust God's understanding of your heart? Will you trust what God is showing you right now through your adversity? God knows your heart intimately more than you do. And he still loves you the same, right? Despite, yeah, thank you, Lord. Because if you knew what was in my heart sometimes, you'd run for the hills. And some of you do, and you stayed, which I love that about you. That's church family. Despite knowing your true quality, he still decides to refine our hearts anyway. I hope that right now there's enough scripture to convince you God knows better than you. God knows your heart better than you. Now let's take the next step, and let's just see for a little bit the complexities of the heart. This is chapter 12, verse 25. Chapter 12, verse 25. Solomon says that anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. But a good word makes it glad. We, we see the remedy for anxiety already right now. And it's not what American culture tells you, right? That was you? Oh. <laughs> I'll read it one more time. 1225. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. I think first and foremost right now, we have to acknowledge, we've got to be honest with ourselves and with our church. That there's a lot of anxiety going on right now, right? There's some fires raging right now inside of us, in our relationships, in this church, through, through the church. And it weighs, right? Solomon gives us the remedy. One hurtful thing in our hearts is anxiety. Those are the worries, the concerns, the cares of this life and relationships. But both Old and New Testament has a consistently clear message about our anxieties and what we turn to to remedy it. One, anxiety is a common human experience. Here's the thing that you have to acknowledge. Whether your anxieties and your cares and concerns are physical or emotional, pain pushes you to selfishness. Pain screams for you to focus on self. When you are in pain, you cannot hear what's going on with another person because all you can see is your pain. As water reflects face, so does the heart reflect man. Pain tempts you to selfishness. That's why, if you see time and time again through our church family, stick around. Many people, when they're in pain, the first thing they do is withdraw from God and church because they can't handle the other voices in pain. They have to focus and fixate on themselves. But anxiety is a common human experience. Pain tempts you to feel that you are the only one. But pain is not being truthful to you in this case, which is why you cannot trust your heart as the ultimate gauge of reality. Anxiety must be dealt with by casting it, throwing it, rolling it onto Christ. And now we know a little bit from the Proverbs as to why. God is your workman. God is your tester. God is your refiner. He is going to heat up your life. He is going to bring anxieties and afflictions and temptations and struggles and stresses your way. 
It is meant to bubble up what's going on in your heart to the surface so you can see it. Right now, virtually every single one of us is struggling with some sort of anxiety and some sort of worry, some sort of concern. There's some care that is weighing us down. We are going through a tough season right now as a church family. Our anxieties are testing, and I pray refining, love for Christ, love for church, love for his word. Or if not, it's bubbling up the things that are really there. Our anxieties are testing whether our devotion to Christ is genuine and whether we consider it to be worth it. Because pain tempts us to cut ourselves off from everybody. Solomon says that anxieties weigh us down. But Jesus says, give me all of your anxieties. Give, it to, give me those cares. Give me those concerns. Tell me about it over and over and over. I don't know how many times with Tisa's struggles, many times she'll say something like this. I've already told you. I already told you what I'm struggling with. I already told you how I'm hurting. And I say, tell me again. If you told me a thousand times, tell me a thousand and one. Because you and I, because we're Christians, it doesn't matter if it's been a thousand times. Just like to our Father, it doesn't matter if it's been a thousand times. We say it a thousand and one, right? Because you and I are the image of Christ in this world. And to be able to tell somebody, you've told me too many times, i got to cut you off, would be saying that the Father doesn't want to hear it, Right? Jesus says that anxieties make you weary and it makes you heavy laden. But Jesus' work of refining, he says in Matthew 11, is for our rest. Right? He says, take my yoke upon yours, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy and light. Your anxieties have weighed you down. That yoke is heavy. Solomon also says here that good words makes the heart glad. That's the remedy. You want to inject a real difference into the anxieties that your heart is struggling with. You have to put yourself in a position to hear good words. All right? And the question you have to ask is, out of all of the words out there, what is the best position for your heart to be exposed to the best of all words? What is the best of all words? listening to the motivational speaker on Instagram, or picking up that New York Times bestseller, or something else. What is the best position to put your heart in to hear the best of all words? And we believe that God's word is the ultimate word that your heart needs to get through your anxieties. Amen? Therefore, whether it's personally or corporately, in times of pain, all the more you must keep putting yourself in a position to be exposed to God's word. You don't shy away from scripture. You don't shy away from church. You dig into it all the more in your anxieties, which is counter to what your body's telling you when you're in pain, right? Let me stay home. Let me medicate. That's how I can fix it. But the gospel says, don't stay home. Dig into the scriptures more. Get around your church family all the more. Now, let's keep going with the heart's complexities. This is 13.12. Solomon says in Proverbs 13.12 that hope deferred makes your heart sick. 
but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And I will have to say, there are many of us here to hear this right now that we are heart sick. We are heart sick right now, and it's killing us. Solomon teaches us here that there is a relationship between our hearts and hope. Do you see it? Hope is more than just wishing upon a star, throwing a penny into a fountain. Hope is the work of God in our hearts for this, to expect our Father, yes, expect our Father to work all things out for his glory and for your ultimate good. That's hope. But sometimes, Solomon acknowledges here, and we feel this, that hope is deferred. It's delayed. It feels like it isn't happening. Even our ultimate hope, which is the second advent of Jesus, we have been learning on Wednesday nights, it's delayed. There's a wedding feast, the bridegroom is supposed to come, and he is late, right? We've been looking at that on Wednesday nights. Sometimes hope feels delayed. Hope doesn't even feel like it's here. And when hope feels lost, our hearts are sick. But in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says that God's refining work in us through tribulation produces something. Remember that list? In the ultimate sense, God works tribulations our way, he says, to produce hope. No coincidence from Solomon to Paul, scattered across thousands of years, consistent message. God uses tribulation not to keep you weighed down, but to produce hope in you. God is our workman, and this must mean, it must mean, this is our hope, that anxiety is not accidental. Whatever anxieties that you're facing right now are not random. They're not accidental. It is for some reason by which I do not know is there to show you what is really bubbling up from your heart, your true self. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a good word, or, um, but Jesus gives life when hope is fulfilled, right? Jesus is the proof that in the long run, all things will work out for his glory and for our ultimate good. Hope fulfilled is a tree of life. And it's no coincidence, therefore, that of all places and all means by which Jesus could have died, he died on a tree. Right? There are many ways the Romans could have killed him. There are many ways the Jews could have killed him, right? He died on a piece of wood. Because desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Amen. All right, two more Proverbs on the subject of the complexities. This is 1513, and then I'm going to go to 1722. Consistent message. 1513, and then 1722. Solomon says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. That's 1513. Then turn the page to chapter 17, verse 22. Solomon says, a joyful heart is good medicine. The best medicine. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. And once again, heritage, many of your hearts are sad. We'll be honest. Many of our spirits are broken right now. Many of our bones feel dried up, right? Proverbs has a consistent message. Like hope, Joy has positive and negative relationships to the heart. 
Joy is the work of God in our hearts to make us truly happy, not just chemical reactions brought about by substances that are here and gone. True hope, true joy, lasting hope, lasting joy. Solomon says when joy is present, it cheers the heart. But when joy is absent, it saddens the heart. Solomon says that when the absence, that absence of joy breaks the spirit, dries up the bones. So hopefully you see right now, the human heart is really complex. It's more than just emotions. It's all your joy. It's all your hope. It's so much more. It's who you really are. The heart is connected to our bodies, and it's connected to our spirit. As your heart goes, you will go. And when hope and joy are lacking, it has an impact on everything. That is why your heart cannot be the ultimate gauge and the ultimate authority on what you're experiencing right now. It can't be. It has to be God's point of view and not yours. God must be the ultimate gauge and authority on your experiences. And here's some hope right now. And here's some joy. God works through Jesus to restore our hearts, which means restoring joy and restoring hope. For a moment, you've got to jump to the Gospel of John. All right, so jump to the New Testament. Get through Matthew, Mark, Luke. Get to the 15th chapter in verse 11. You've got to see what Jesus says here. John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you. But wait, there's more. And that your joy may be made full. Do you see the link right now between true, real, lasting joy and Jesus speaking to you? Jesus is not here literally and physically to speak to you. You have three things. You have the word of Jesus, you have the spirit of Jesus, and you have the body of Jesus, which is the church. Which is why you must position yourself all the more to be around those things. God's word is essential and vital to your true and lasting joy. So if you are lacking joy and hope, the best place for you this morning isn't to be out to brunch. And it isn't to be out kayaking. William loves that one. Because I think you recently on a Sunday morning when you were away went kayaking on a Sunday morning just for that purpose. And we do every time that we're away on a Sunday. You go kayaking. Well, we find a church that's having a business meeting about their deacons using guns. <laughs> we do that. <laughs> All right. That's our William, right? Oh, my. <laughs> Once again, if you are lacking joy and hope, the best place for you to be is in the body of Christ and in the word of Christ. You're always with the spirit of Christ because he's with you and in you if you're a Christian. That's one thing you cannot change, but you can distance yourself from the scripture and you can distance yourself from your brother and sister in Christ. And when you are in pain, you will be tempted to do this because pain is selfish. 
pain screams for you to forget about God, to forget about other people, turn inward, focus on self. That fact alone must prove to you, throw Christianity away for a moment. That fact alone, which we all know is true, proves the heart is far more complex than you can ever imagine. But God knows it intimately, and he knows it infinitely, and you do not. Therefore, you and I must trust his voice above all other voices. The voice that's screaming to you in your pain, and the voice of American culture. So the call today, point one is all about positioning. So the point is for you to reposition your heart so you can be in a position again to really hear what God says about your heart, about your anxieties, about your concerns and cares. Your heart is not the ultimate voice that you should listen to. It has a role, but it's not to be ultimate. God's heart is. And God's heart today, make no mistake, despite whatever tribulation you're facing and how it makes you feel about God, God's heart is for you, 100% for you. And he proves it by giving his son to redeem your heart. So reposition your heart right now. Put God into first gear because he created your heart. He sent his son to die to redeem your heart and to restore your hearts. The work of Jesus through his word, through his spirit, and through his church is to grow your heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So will you trust in God's wisdom on the topic of the heart? Or will you lean on your own understanding? All right, last proverb, Proverbs 4.23. 4.23. So based on all this, Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, so watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Do you see a thread yet on from Wednesdays to Sundays? The call to vigilance, the call to sobriety, the call to stay alert that we just keep hearing? Watch over your heart diligently, because from it flows the springs of life. So the Bible says your heart is essential. Make no mistake. The human heart is essential. As your heart goes, you go. And that should be even more motivation for diligent watchfulness, for sobriety. You must be the watchman of your heart. But you're not alone in this. You have God's word, you have God's spirit, and you have God's people to keep watch with you. Now that's scary. I've been checking on people's hearts in recent weeks. It's hard, right, for somebody else to press in and say something, right? But you're not alone in this. Typically, I have even used this verse, Proverbs 4.23, as a way for me to shield my heart from people. Oh, Solomon calls me to watch over my heart. But when you look at the fuller counsel of God on your heart, you would see that's misapplication, right? The application isn't for you to watch over your heart by distancing yourself from people. The application is that the heart is so essential and the heart is so complex, you've got to gain God's understanding of it. And that is done by watchfulness. So here's our application. 
I kind of wish we're still in the Gospel of John so we could do that pivot. Do you see that license plate that William posted, that pivot license plate on Facebook? That was you, right? Yeah. Because I think Facebook was kind of like, wow, William posted, and it just like hit my news feed. Here's our application. We talked about position. Now we're going to talk about posture. You are to posture your heart to grow in your love for him and for others. You're going to have to posture, you're going to have to do something with this heart for God to grow your heart's love for him and for people. We have to acknowledge this. God's chief work in your life is not to make you healthy or to make you wealthy. It's not. That may be a subculture of Christianity's message that you can be exposed to, but it's not the consistent message of the Bible. God's chief work among you isn't to make you healthy and wealthy. On the other hand, God's chief work is very clear that he is here to redeem and to restore your heart. This has to be the motive for you to change your posture. So if it's closed, open. And if it's open, open even more. And this should change your attitude of your heart towards God, towards his spirit, towards his word, and towards his people. Because no one has the power, no one has the ability to change your hearts except God. Spouses, you've tried, right? Wives, you try to change your husband's heart. It doesn't work. We still do the same errors over and over and over again. What conclusion should you draw? You are not powerful enough to change the human heart. But someone loves you so that has the power to do that. So for a moment, let's review God's work in our hearts. Let's begin in Ezekiel. This is after Proverbs you get into the wisdom writings, you get into Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, or you're going to get into the prophets. You go through Isaiah, Jeremiah. You hit Ezekiel 36. That's one of the, the biggest verses of the Bible that I'm about to read, and we've looked at it time and time again. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. While the Jews... We're in another exile, another slavery in a foreign country, wondering where God is. Does God care? Does God care about their hearts? God says this through Ezekiel to them. There's a day in the future where I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Who gives the new heart? Who changes hearts? It doesn't say, Pastor Joe can give you a new heart. Pastor Joe can cause you to care about scripture. I wish I could. Actually, I don't. Only God can. This is called the new covenant. God's chief work in you is to renew your heart. We call this regeneration. We call this the new covenant. Regeneration is the work of God in our hearts through the resurrection of Jesus to renew our rebel hearts. The Holy Spirit is the causation. The Holy Spirit is the mechanism by which you begin to value God above all things, begin to value his word above all things. And above all, all words in the scriptures and outside the scriptures 
What is the greatest word for your life and for my life? Jesus clarified this in Matthew 22. So jump to the Gospels. All right, switch to New Testament. Keep going past the prophets, the prophets, minor prophets. Get to Matthew, 22nd chapter. Another lawyer comes up to Jesus. He asks him to straight up, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, verses 37, that's where we'll start. Matthew 22, 37, Jesus responds to this lawyer and he says, You shall love the Lord, and look what's first. Love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great foremost commandment. But then there's a second, right? The second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then look at the seriousness of these two statements. Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. The most important work of God in your life is to make you healthy and wealthy. It is to renew your heart to love him as he intended Loving God with all of your mind, loving God with all your soul, loving God with all your strength, it begins with the heart. Because the heart is just much more than your emotions. It's the very fabric of your being. As your heart goes, you go. Jesus says, all the commands of the Bible hinges and depends on this work of God in our lives. And the very first thing that Jesus mentions after this work of God to love him with all the heart is done, the very first thing that he mentions is that it overflows to love to people, all kinds of people. And on Wednesday nights, we've been clarifying who's my brother, who's the least of these, right? The best chance that you have to love people in the way that God intends is to love God wholeheartedly. That's it. You want the recipe to be a better spouse, be a better parent, be a better employee, fill in the blank, be a better friend? Love God wholeheartedly. The chief work of God is to redeem your heart and reorder your desires by it. God knows your heart perfectly. God knows who you really are in your highs and your lows. And despite knowing your heart intimately and extensively, Jesus still died to renew your heart. That's unfathomable, right? This new heart has a posture. Love God wholeheartedly above all other loves. Then and only then can you love people with dignity in the way that they deserve and the way that God designed. I want to say that one one more time. Then and only then, when you love God wholeheartedly, can you love people in your life with dignity in the way that they deserve and the way that God designed. Solomon's wisdom is this. Every Christian is called to grow in love for God and people. Now I want to jump to Paul to make this point deepened. You need to turn to 2 Thessalonians. So this is after Gospels, after Acts. You get into the writings of Paul. You go through Romans, you go through Corinthians and Galatians. Eventually you'll get to Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I want you to look at verses 3 through 5. The focus is verse 5, but I want you to see a promise first. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 through 5 says, The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you. He will protect you from the evil one. 
we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and you will continue to do what we command. Now here it is. May the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. we got to start with the promise that Paul mentions here. God will be faithful above your anxieties, above your cares and concerns, above the drying of your bones. God will be faithful. God will be faithful to strengthen you. God will be faithful to protect you. So we ask, how? How does God do this? Paul says, by God continuing his work in you, which means you are a work in progress. God's not done with you yet. God continues to work in you by keeping that heart posture open to him, his word, his spirit, his people. The result, Paul says, is that God directs your heart and it grows in steadfast love. This steadfast love spills over to people. So we're going to summarize now. God created you. God created your heart. In Adam, you and I rebelled against God, and this fundamentally changed our hearts. Our hearts are bent. Our hearts are bent inward towards ourselves instead of to God. We naturally rebel against God's voice, and we replace it with our voice. Pain amplifies this desire. Despite this, God still sends his son to redeem and to renew your heart. Jesus' heart was broken on the cross so that your heart could be restored. Do you see that? He was forsaken, and he cried out in that forsakenness. So where does this leave you today? I think that you need to acknowledge that your heart may be out of position. You're distancing yourself or that the posture of your heart isn't open. It's in the wrong posture. And with that, I want you to jump to the Psalms. Psalm 139. Let's listen to the wisdom of Solomon's dad. And listen to something he says when he's done with a prayer. It's very practical for us. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Psalm 139. If you can acknowledge, I'm distancing myself, like literally away from God's word, God's people, which you're here, so it may not be, you're in the position, you may not be in the posture, because you can be here and not here. So it could be about opening your heart back up. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David prays this, after saying, God, you're all-knowing, you're everywhere present, you're all-powerful. When he's done worshiping God in his prayer, this is what he says practically. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me, and then lead me in the everlasting way. I think David, if he could have read Solomon's Proverbs, would say, well done, son, you captured Psalm 139. David acknowledges that only God can truly search, try, and know his heart. And the same goes for you, same goes for me. So therefore, David's prayer right here, must become our prayer. Verse 23, 24, I think has to be added to all of our prayers and how we pray. We must pray for God to search and test our hearts. And here's the thing, God does this through affliction. Heating up the metal of your life because you are his workmanship. We must pray for God 
to know our hearts and to know our anxieties, our anxious thoughts. We must pray for God. Okay, when you're doing this, you heat up my life. Show me what's there. Show me what's going on in my heart. Remember, God does this by increasing the fire. How many of your testimonies of coming to Christ and staying in Christ has been, life got worse being a Christian, not better, right? Because it proves that God increases the intensity of the fire to show you what's in your hearts. David had his fires. Jesus had his fires. So do you. And so do I. Fires help us to face and confront what's really there, what's really going on inside of us. So we must pray for God to lead us. And God does this by his word, by his spirit, and by his church. That's how we grow. That is how we grow in love for God and how we grow in love for people. We must trust God that he knows better about our hearts than we do. And with that, I'm going to pray. What I'm simply going to lead us through right now is just a prayer of trying to apply Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. 